All right, this is Rockin' Rich with NFL agent Lee Steinberg. Lee, thank you so much for joining uh, me today. We are out. We're without Rocky. We have a bit of a ice storm here, so he couldn't actually get to the studio. Glad to be with you, Lee. When I first heard about your story, it it's very inspiring. To be honest with you, you know, it's like they had a lot of athletes. They call the comeback kid, but I almost. I almost wanted to call you the comeback kid. You know, you know, you you've been the agent of change, and you know you're doing so many things in the NFL. But you also represent Patrick Mahomes. You rep- represented Steve Young and Troy Aikman, and these just incredible athletes. You know, over your 41 year career. But how did you get there? And you know, just tell me a little bit about your background, and you know how you actually got to this point. So I grew up in Los Angeles, went a year to UCLA and then to UC Berkeley. It was the late 60s. And I was student body president when Ronald Reagan was governor. And I learned everything I needed to learn about the art of negotiating from interacting with uh, the governor who later became president. I was a dorm counselor while I was going to law school in an undergraduate dorm, and they moved the freshman football team into the dorm, and one of the students was Steve Bartkowski. He was the quarterback, Uh. and in 1975, he became the very first player selected in the first round of the NFL draft. So I had been out of law school traveling the world for a while, and when I came back, he asked me if I'd represent him. So there I was, brimming with legal experience, never having practiced, and I had the first pick in the first round of the draft. And we got lucky. It was the largest rookie contract in NFL history. And there really was not an organized field of sports agentry back then. There was no guaranteed right of representation. So a team could say, we don't deal with agents and just slam the phone down. Mm. Um, But we got... We got the largest rookie contract in NFL history. And I saw then that athletes were the movie stars and idols in different cities. And if they would use that high profile to try and make a difference off the field, um, they could retrace their roots and go back to the high school and set up a scholarship fund or boys and girls club or work with the church. They could go back to the university town and, um, set up a scholarship fund like Troy Aikman did. They could, at the professional level, set up a charitable foundation with the leading business figures, political figures, and uh, community leaders, all of which would combine to help them execute a program. So Warwick Dunn, the former running back of uh, Tampa Bay, just put the 200th single mother and her family into the first home we'll ever own by making the down payment and moving the family in. Wow. So I saw that we could change lives through athletics. Yeah, you know, I was reading that you get guys with integrity and character. That was a big deal even when you first came out of the gate, wasn't it? Well, it was because I wanted to – I was raised by a father who had two core values. One was treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was to make a meaningful difference in the world and help people who couldn't help themselves. Mm. So I uh, felt like I had a mission beyond just 
putting more dollars in players' bank books, but it was to try to represent high-character athletes who then could trigger imitative behavior. So when I did the heavyweight boxer, Lennox Lewis helped him. He cut a public service announcement that said, real men don't hit women. Wow. And that could more do more to trigger behavioral change in rebellious adolescence towards the issue of domestic violence than a thousand authority figures ever could. That is such a big deal in today's society, Lee. It's making a, a big difference, you know, and man, and people like you are sort of leading the way. One of the, one of the problems we have today is situational ethics. So someone will be very nice at home to his kids and cats and dogs to then go out in a workplace and use heinous social Darwin tactics because after all the end justifies the means because it's just business. And when you bifurcate your uh, ethics and values that way and utilize different ones in different places, it leads to real problems for the society, but sort of a soul death uh, for people who are, that way. There's a bit of a twist of irony in your story because of what you dealt with personally towards the height of your career. Jerry Maguire came out, which is loosely based on your life. I mean, more or less, right? I mean, you became the center of attention without necessarily asking for it. What happened during that time, Lee? So, um, I came to a point in my life where my father died a long uh, death from cancer. My two boys were diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, which is an eye disease, which led to them both being blind. We lost a home in Beachside to, to a condition that's mold. And I felt like I was failing my family and I couldn't protect them. And it was probably grandiose to think I could, but I turned to alcohol and finally got to the point where uh, to numb the pain, um, I, I, alcohol had taken control of my life. And I had an epiphany that I wasn't a starving peasant in Sudan, that I didn't have the last name Steinberg in Nazi Germany, that I wasn't uh, sick in any way. So what right did I have to to um, not be the best father and not uh, try to make change in the world. So I went into sober living. I worked a 12-step program, and um, next month um, I'll be 12 years continuously sober. So life's much happier. Well, congratulations on that, first of all. You were touting integrity and character Yet behind the scenes, you were you were broken, Lee. It turns out there's lots of help available in that situation, but you first have to break denial because alcohol is the addiction that tells you you don't have a problem, right, mm. and become defensive about that. So, um, but again, I worked a twelve step program with a unique fellowship, um, lived in sober living for uh, seven or eight months, and. Um, and adopted a regimen. So if anybody is out there confused, depressed, with no direction, just know there are 12-step programs and help that um, 
is there for you. And uh, so, so have hope. I think it's a sense of resilience, the ability to be optimistic in the face of wreckage, the ability to see the light at the end of the tunnel, and, um, uh, and your life can be much happier. People talk about my comeback, and my comeback was maintaining sobriety and being a good father. And anything else that happened was uh, 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 just a cherry on top. What was the lowest point that you reached, the, the absolute lowest, where you hit bottom? Um, I was sitting on a park bench having moved back to my parents' house, having shut down my uh, agency, having uh, closed up my condominium. And um, at my parents on my deceased father's bed, uh, and my only thought in life was where could I find more vodka? And I'd been reduced to to that being my motivation. Wow. And uh, I had a lot of wreckage around me, financial and otherwise. Um, and so at that point, you sort of have to make a decision as to to whether or not you you are going to re-engage life. And um, so I could see beyond that wreckage and realize how far I drifted. Wow. Absolutely incredible. And you go from that moment to signing Patrick Mahomes and then signing the, I think it's the largest NFL contract in history. Is that right? Yes. A- absolutely remarkable. That, Lee... If your story doesn't inspire others to change that, I don't know what else they could do. I mean, and for you to use your platform now for that is truly remarkable. I want you to know that. Let's skip to today's NFL. I mean, this this past year, the playoff games, they were probably as good as, we, as we've ever seen, Lee. I've never seen anything like that. I'm a huge NFL fan. Go, go Cowboys for all you Cowboy fans out there. How do you see it progressing forward? So we've never had a sport dominate popular culture the way that NFL football does currently. Um, 70 or 80 of the top 100 shows that were on television last year were NFL games in terms of high ratings. Wow. That's incredible. It means that not only is it the most popular sport by two to one it's the most popular form of entertainment overall wow and so it's very dominant and you could not design if in a hundred iterations having four playoff games come down to the very last play no so um it's dominating now and it dominates on social media and we have fantasy soon we'll have paramutual betting and we have new jumbo stadiums with jumbo scoreboards and naming rights and luxury boxes and 40 million people a week playing fantasy sports so it's really turned into um, multiple ways to to enjoy the sport right and it goes far farther so we're working on a new VR project with uh, Patrick Mahomes where you 
put on a helmet and you're magically transported to Arrowhead Stadium. You, you hear the crowd noise. You see the players coming towards you. And what? Predicated to what you do with the football, you either can throw a touchdown pass or theoretically you could get sacked. So there are new ways to to enjoy the sport. There are fan leagues now where people who pay into it uh, at some level can pick the coach, can pick the uh, players. Uh, it's played on a on a sound set. Wow! There are uh, we continue to evolve in in respect to all of these new things. There are new healing modalities. We have hyperbaric oxygen and stem cells and a light bed called light stem that stimulates healing and and uh, ATP and protein folding. So there's uh, new protocols for health and longevity. Wow. And uh, football is really the center of all of it. And so that leads me to my next question. You've been a big advocate for safety in the sport. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that has suddenly got the attention, you know, over the, the last, you know, three, four, five years, right? But you were actually started long before that. So I had a crisis of conscience back in the late 1980s, early 90s, representing at that point half the starting quarterbacks. They keep getting hit in the head. Mm. When we went to doctors and asked how many is too many, what's the magic number, when should you contemplate retirement, they had no answers. So I started holding concussion player safety conferences, held the first one in the early 90s, and that had Troy Aikman and Steve Young and Warren Moon and Drew Bledsoe and a series of players listening to neurologists about what the state of the art was in understanding awareness, prevention, and cure concussion. And I became doubly concerned because we're growing bigger, stronger, faster players. So the G force to the line of scrimmage is much higher. Right. And so it became clear that we not only had knockout blows, but we had subconcussive events where every time a lineman hits a lineman at the line of scrimmage, it produces a low level subconcussive event, just a little bit of change. Uh-huh. So you could have an offensive lineman walk out of football having played in high school, collegiate, and professional ball, with 10,000 subconcussive events, none of which have been diagnosed, none of which the player's aware of, but the aggregate almost certainly does the same thing as three knockout blows, which is a higher propensity towards Alzheimer's, premature senility, ALS, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and depression. So I've called it a ticking time bomb and an undiagnosed health epidemic. And we keep coming up and have to keep coming up with ways to make the game safer. It's an existential threat because suppose 50% of the moms in the country know the facts of the concussion and tell their teenage boys, you can play any sport, but not tackle football. It won't kill football, but it will gradually erode the base of who's playing it. So you end up with it being a gladiator sport like boxing or UFC, where only people 
suffering from poverty or a need for economics play it so it becomes a gladiator sport not quickly but over time um, when i was a kid boxing was a very popular sport in america it was very mainstream and it's not now and um so this is a threat going forward to to football as popular as as it is and dominating as it is i mean you're right because you know we have Okay, take baseball, for instance, right? There's an abundance of baseball players out there because so many, I guess, parents get their kids involved so young. So by the time that they're you know, 15 or 16 years old, they've been playing baseball for 8 or 9 or 10 years, you know, some of them. And if that similar thing happens in football, you've got the risk of damaging a very young brain. So one of the suggestions is not to have kids play tackle football until at least they get to high school. Another is to try to play the game with no hitting in training camp or in practices. The hitting is all in the game and you just model plays. Another is to teach kids when they're young to block and tackle without using the head and neck. Another um, is to find nutraceuticals and pharmaceuticals that can protect that can heal a brain and there's a new process called rtms that's very promising that way so there are a lot of ways to try to make the game safer we'll never make it totally safe it's it's uh, a traffic accident on every play but uh, i keep striving because i don't want to represent players and lead them down the road to dementia. If you start losing some of these big names and some of the people like you represent, I mean, that's not good. That's not good for the sport because those, those guys bring uh, an audience themselves a lot of times. Well, and, and it's not simply pro football. It's college football. It's high school football. Mm. It's hockey. It's AYSO with young girls who, Head the ball. Mm. Obviously, baseball is going through <laughs> some changes, to say the least, uh, Lee. And I don't know how much you you know about that or how much you dive into that. But, you know, I've always thought about the salary cap thing, you know, because it seems like baseball is just out of control. Its business model is so age-related that one of the things the players are fighting for is the fact that in the first three years of a player's career, they can pay the minimum. So you get the anomaly of like Mike Trout being the MVP of the league, making $700,000 when a utility infielder who got the benefit of free agency, you know, is making 17 million. Mm. And, um, because of the way the system's structured. So, um, one of the problems is this, that having a strike or a labor stoppage at a time when we have a pandemic and when um, sports have been struggling to destabilize it is really self-destructive for the sport. I mean, one of the reasons pro football is so popular is they've not had a labor stoppage or a cessation of play since 1987. Wow. So for 35 years, football has been continuously played, which means all the focus goes on the field, developing revenue sources. The brand isn't hurt. 
So in baseball in 1994, there was a strike. They lost a season. And the next year, the gross receipts were down 40%. Oh, my goodness. And it it took Mark McGuire against Sammy Sosa, the steroid-fueled home run record, to bring the sport back. And so I just fear that this goes on too long. It will be damaging for the sport of baseball. Now, I don't know if you're representing any baseball players right now, but are you? No, I've, in the past, with uh, my partner, Jeff Morad, we had 60 players. So at the height of it, we had uh, Hall of Famers like Pudge Rodriguez. We had yes. CC Sabathia, Sean uh, Green, Will Clark, Matt Williams, a whole series of all-star players. Um, and we just started another baseball practice. So we'll be back into it. Um, and... <clears throat> This this one could get stalled for a while because anytime in negotiating when you have two parties who each think they're acting in good faith and the other party theoretically is not, uh, it leads to a breakdown. And when you get two parties locked in with each other, um, both of whom think that they're absolutely right, um, you, you can have a a breakdown that goes on for quite a while. And nobody wins, obviously, in that situation. No. You know, the sport. So what do you tell the players in, if something like that happens? I mean, what do you say to them? Well, in in baseball, they're represented by players associations. So you have in sports a situation where the agent will represent the player in his personal contract negotiations with teams We'll work on endorsements, second career. My job's not over until we have someone placed in a fulfilling second career. Um, and then you have a players association that negotiates the collective bargaining. Mm. So the union is doing that. And basically, you want to make sure that players are as well educated as possible and they understand the issues and the stakes, but they pretty much have to stay with the group and, and act as a group. So what do you tell on an individual level, obviously the financial part of it for them, it's, it's going to hit their wallets, right? So what do you tell them? How do you prepare your, your, your players? Well, you make sure that they understand the issues and why this um, fight is going on. Mm. And if in point of fact, and you make sure that that you're fighting over issues that are worth fighting over, uh, and you make sure that you prioritize what what constitutes a a good collective bargaining agreement, and um, uh, but at the same time, I would wish that settlement would have happened before. Now you have a group of um, owners who've convinced themselves that the system's out of control. And you have a set of players who've convinced themselves mm. the system's out of control, but they have different solutions. And um, uh, so you just want to make sure that the player is as well educated on the issues as, as is possible. And, um, um, and probably that they've saved up some money. 
Yeah, I was going to say, so how do you prepare them financially? Do you consult with them when you go into a contract? You just say, well, they, okay, they, you know. Yeah, they each have financial planners okay. in their life. So they have someone who's put them on a budget, and um, they have a financial plan that's been um, ex- explained to them. So this was not a surprise that this was coming. Uh-huh. Um, again, uh I, I think it's uh, destructive for the sport to ever cut off a play and and cut off spring training, but um, especially at this vulnerable time. But I think the most important skill in life is listening. If you can create enough trust with another human being and peel back the layers of the onion. So eventually you get to someone's deepest anxieties and fears and greatest hopes and dreams. Then, and you can put yourself in the heart and mind of another human being and see the world the way they see it. And it gives one the capacity to navigate through life gracefully. So it's, it's I need to feel other people's situation and understand what is motivating them deep down to ever be able to fulfill them. So um, it's sort of not about me. It's about how I can help them. And you are certainly using your platform to do that in so many ways. Well, Lee, let's hope for uh, the baseball season will continue. I, I, you know, I just wish you all the best and, and, you know, your comeback story. Like I said, you are the comeback kid. I don't care what anybody else says about all these other athletes. You know, I think that you have proven that you could do it at any age and you could go reach the top, go to the bottom, bottom and then go back to the top. And, um, you know, what you're doing is uh, just remarkable. Thank you kindly. Thank you so much for your time. Bye-bye.